For those of you who are new, I'm Jamie, one of the pastors here, and the first thing I would like to do is to give thanks to God and to uh, thanks to my good friend Rick for this blessing to this church and me in particular. I'm grateful, brother. Thank you. You do fine work. Appreciate you very, very much. You're a blessing to me in more ways. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can't move this one as easily as the old one, and that's a good thing. Thank you, brother. I very much appreciate your work and service to this church. Uh, we're in the middle of a... Actually, no, we're at the end. We're at the end of a series we're entitling Christ-Exalting Worship. It is a five-week series as we're considering what it means to exalt Jesus Christ as a community. We've looked at a number of aspects of this, individual worship uh, to exalt Christ, and then corporate worship to exalt Christ. Last Lord's Day, we talked about the role of the conscience in the, role in, the, in the Christian life, and today we'll be talking about the role of the conscience in Christian community. So we'll be looking at what is the conscience in the role, uh, what role does the conscience have in a church as a community? Now, just as a supplement, when you came in today and received a worship guide, inside your worship guide, there was a, a little handout, looks a little bit like this, and um, while I won't have time to completely explain this to you, here's what I would encourage you to do as a supplement to today's considerations, uh, to read this afternoon, when you have some time, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, a little bit of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, as well as Romans 14, a little bit of 15 as we'll be considering today. And uh, I think that will be helpful as you're looking at this little graph here uh, to understand what is the conscience and what do we do when the conscience disagrees. In addition to that, I would recommend to you a book that uh, I was helped by in preparing for these messages called Conscience, What It Is, How to Train It, and Loving Those Who Differ by Andy Nacelli and J.D. Crowley. Um, excellent book. I think I gave it away at the last members gathering. I have a few more copies if you want. Otherwise, pick one up from Amazon or whatever. A uh, really helpful book in, in considering these matters, which I, I find to be somewhat neglected in uh, Christian preaching. Well, I hope that after today it's not as neglected. Um, if you would uh, point your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14 is where we'll, we'll spend most of our time together. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there is one provided for you in the pew in front of you. And you'll, you'll find Romans chapter 14 appearing on page 948 of the church Bible. We're going to actually do the entire chapter along with a little bit of chapter 15. But to get us started, I'm just going to read the first few verses of Romans 14. We have a lot to cover and by God's grace, I'm going to try and keep it to 45 minutes. Although, no promises, it is a big subject. Romans chapter 14, beginning at verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is for his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld. 
for the Lord is able to make him stand. Would you pray? Father, we come to you now, we ask for your Holy Spirit, and we ask, Lord, that you would continue to be so gracious as you has always, have always been toward us in granting us your Holy Spirit to give us understanding. For we know, Lord, that without him, without his work in our hearts, we shall never understand your word, and we must today hear your word, for you have the words of eternal life. Do this for Jesus' sake, we ask. Amen. Some years ago, I was on vacation with my family, uh, vacationing in North Carolina at the beach. And uh, this part of the North Carolina beach, uh, there are these fishing piers which jet out into the ocean a good ways. And one morning, I was uh, fishing all by myself, and a gentleman sat up next to me. We exchanged pleasantries. And I noticed that on his t-shirt, he had a cross on his t-shirt. And so I asked him, are you a Christian? Yes, he said. So am I, I said. Are you a a Catholic or are you a Protestant? I'm a Protestant, he said. So am I. I was thrilled. Evangelical? Yes, he said. Well, so am I. Well, I let him set up his gear and gave him a minute before I asked the next question. Pato baptist or credo-baptist? Credo, of course. <laughs> so am I. Complementarian? Egalitarian? Complementarian? <laughs> Me too. Gave him a minute or two before I asked, what are your thoughts on intinction? He said, no way. Keep them separate. My thoughts exactly. Well, the fishing was slow. I gave him a couple of minutes. I was happy to meet a new friend, but I had to ask, what is your favorite version of the Bible? And he answered, the New Living Translation. So I called him a heretic and pushed him off the pier. (laughs) What, What else was I supposed to do? I'm being silly, of course. But Christians have pushed Christians off of peers for far less. Last week, we looked at the role of the conscience in the Christian life. And the definition that we used for the Christian conscience is this. It is your personal, God-given, internal sense of what is right and wrong regarding something you've done or something you are about to do. We acknowledged last week that you should always listen to your conscience. It is not perfect, but you should always listen to it. It needs to be calibrated by Scripture. It is given to you by God, but your conscience is not God. And so we use this slide to show that God's will is here, and every Christian's conscience is largely going to line up with God's will as they read Scripture, submit to Scripture. But our understanding of God's will remains imperfect, and therefore no two consciences will agree on everything. But by God's grace, there's lots of overlap. And as we grow in our understanding of God and His holy word, that overlap only increases. 
There are things in your conscience, dear Christian, that you put in bounds, which God actually has out of bounds. And there are things in your life, dear Christian, that you put out of bounds that God has made in bounds. Our consciences are students of our culture. And we are, by nature, prone to tribalism. And sometimes we just can't see where we are wrong. And so the question remains for our consideration, what do we do when one conscience disagrees with another conscience? And that is the subject of Romans chapter 14 through 15.7. Big section of Scripture We're going to draw five things out of this text. Five things. I'll put them on the screen for you if you're taking notes. But here's the big idea this morning. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And don't quarrel over opinions. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And don't quarrel over opinions. Paul's concern for the Christians in Rome is not really about who is right and who is wrong in this matter of a conscience. His concern in Rome is about walking in love and in Christian unity, which Pastor Brent prayed for just a moment ago. This is what's at stake when two consciences disagree. The unity of the church of Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, I'm really glad that you came to church today. This message will be a little bit like inside baseball. This is a family meeting of sorts. But I would just encourage you my unbelieving friend, to listen all the way to the end. And listen for the way that God instructs His people to deal with conflict and disagreement among themselves. Now, we don't do this perfectly to be sure, but you'll notice that Christians handle conflict quite differently than what you're used to. The guiding principles that are at play here are going to be foreign to you. Foreign to the way that you handle conflict, the way your family handles conflict, certainly the way our culture handles its disagreements. But the biggest principle that will be different is this. that We Christians understand that by our sin, we have separated ourselves from our Creator by a gulf that no mortal man is ever able to swim. But God sent His own Son, Jesus Christ, to bridge that gap. And to welcome the worst sinners into his arms. So my unbelieving friend, I pray that by the time we're done here, you'll have seen the glory of Jesus Christ. Who welcomes sinners like you into his presence. Through his grace. By trusting in him. By turning from your sin. Before you leave this place, talk with someone about that. Tell them you'd like to follow Jesus and we'll tell you more. First point to draw out of the text this morning comes right out of verse 1, which is this. And this is the main point that this section of Romans is addressing, and it is simple. Welcome the weak. Welcome the weak. 
Now, Paul says this in verse 1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. And that's really the main idea that Paul is driving at here. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Well, the question remains then, what is the weak brother? What is this, who is the him? Welcome him. Who is him? Paul envisions two categories of Christians existing together in the Roman church. The one that he calls weak in faith and the other that he calls strong in faith. And Paul is addressing the strong in faith in this part of Romans. Now, it's important to know that he is addressing those who are in the faith. Paul is not addressing heresy here. Paul is not even dealing with sin here. Paul is dealing with those whose consciences are weak, but they are in the faith. So some of us need to hear this again. This is not about sin. So it's not like some Romans are running around stealing horses and kicking puppies and being like, I don't see the big deal. My conscience is clear. I just kick puppies. That's what I do. Paul is addressing what the English Standard Version translates as quarreling over opinions. The NIV, the CSB, use the phrase disputable matters. I don't know what the New Living Translation says. You'll have to ask the guy at the bottom of the pier. (laughs) We're talking about opinions here. Disputable matters, non-essentials. Weakness, in verse 1, is a weakness of faith. It is a limitation of someone's understanding of the full sufficiency of Christ, both to forgive sin, but also to grant freedom from religious rituals that they believe commend them to God. That sentence was very Dense. I'm going to repeat it again. What is meant by weak in faith here is those people who are struggling to wrap their minds around the concept of the full sufficiency of Christ, his ministry through his life, death, and resurrection, which does two things, which sets a person free from their sin and also releases them from any obligation to doing any kind of ritualistic in order to commend themselves to God. Now, there's nothing in Romans 14 to suggest that the weak Christians in Rome were denying justification by faith alone. They're not adding to the gospel of Jesus Christ like those in Galatia. Otherwise, Paul would have dealt with them like he did those in Galatia by saying, let him be accursed with a heavy rebuke. No, Paul is telling us, telling the Romans that you are not commended commended to God by what you eat or what you drink or by some religious ritual that you observe. These are not things that make it onto your spiritual resume. If you're a Christian, the only thing that makes it on your spiritual resume is the cross of Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ. 
It seems that some Christians in Rome believed that one would prove themselves to be a stronger or better Christian by abstaining from meat or abstaining from wine by observing holy days. And they had forbidden things which God had not forbidden. And they were requiring things of themselves that God had not required. Not as a way to justify themselves, to be sure, but as a way to commend themselves. No, you can see this in verse 2. It sums it up. One person has faith, and they believe they can eat whatever they want. But the weak eats only vegetables. Which, by the way, if you're a vegetarian, Paul is not calling you a weak Christian. But if you are a vegetarian because you think it makes you a better Christian, Paul is calling you a weak Christian. That's what he's dealing with here. And here's, here's what's happening in Rome. The Roman church was founded by Jews who, when they were in Jerusalem during Pentecost, they heard the apostle Peter preach. They came under the conviction of the Holy Spirit they repented and they were baptized and they re returned home to Rome where they started a Christian church. And they continued to follow God in all the ways that they had their whole life, kept keeping the dietary laws, kept the Torah. They, they would observe the Sabbath and holy days. They preached, their, preached the gospel of Jesus Christ to their non-Jewish neighbors. And God was pleased to save them and unite them to the church, the church grew. In the Greco-Roman world of those days, there were a lot of temples dedicated to false Gods And part of the worship of these, in these temples involved animal sacrifices where the meat would then be eaten by the priest, by the worshiper, and whatever was left over would be sold in the marketplace to generate funds for the temple. Now, because there was an association of meat in the marketplace with the worship of idols, Jews felt that that made that meat unclean. And therefore, to play it safe, they chose not to eat meat at all. And everything was going great in Rome. And then the emperor gets mad and he kicks all the Jews out of Rome. And with all the Jews gone out of the church, who's left? All the non-Jewish Gentile believers. And eventually the Jews are allowed to come home. And when they did, they found their church very much changed. Folks just eating meat without any concern whether it was offered to an idol, drinking wine that may or may not have been poured out to an idol. They weren't observing the Sabbaths, and the church began to squabble. The strict Christians were judging the free Christians, and the free Christians were despising the strict Christians. Now notice, in Romans 14, Paul does not address the issue that caused the squabbling. He addresses the, he addresses the squabbling. He doesn't tell the weak in faith, y'all just need to grow up, loosen up, and fix your bad application of God's Word. Paul's concern is with how they're handling this disagreement. Verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. 
Now, how does this apply to us? Is there a direct parallel between Romans 14 and issues in our day? Not really. Like, none of you have ever come to me and said, Pastor, do you actually know what's going on in the meat market just down the road from your house? Like, the guy who owns that place, I think he's a warlock, and there's all kinds of weird stuff going on. Like, nobody's come to me and said that. He isn't a warlock. He's a sweet guy. So there's not really a direct parallel, but the principles here are extremely relevant to many of the disputes that we find ourselves in today. If a brother or sister feels that it is wrong to purchase goods or services from a company that supports abortion or supports the LGBTQ agenda, then for them it is wrong. And they must not pass judgment on those whose consciences are at liberty to make those purchases. And those who make those purchases must not despise those who won't. Some Christians feel strongly that homeschooling is the best way to educate their children. Great. For them it is. And they must not pass judgment on those Christian parents who, in liberty of conscience, send their kids to public school. And nor should the public school parents look down upon the homeschool parents as if they're, some, they're beneath them or some kind of weird isolationist. We must welcome one another. You know, I should have said this probably at the beginning, but the word welcome there in verse 1 means to lean towards someone. It means to put no distance between yourself and them. It's an aggressive receiving in of someone. PBC, we are not welcoming to one another if we're simply tolerating one another. We are not welcoming one another if we're just reluctantly acquiescing to their existence. Yeah, like I know that there's some people in my church that... uh, That's not welcoming one another. In verse 7 of chapter 15, Paul says, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Jesus didn't reluctantly welcome you in. He doesn't tolerate you. He moves towards you to close the gap between. Point one is, welcome the weak. Point two is, be fully convinced in your own mind. This is verse five. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Mind. Now remember, these are not sin issues. These are disputable matters, non-essentials. One Christian esteems one day better than another day. This other Christian thinks all the days are the same. So this is not heresy. I, th- I feel like I need to say that again. This is not heresy. Lord, give me humility here. But the word heresy is a very big, heavy word that some folks throw around too loosely. 
The word heresy is reserved for things like Galatians 1 type of issues where Paul says, let him be accursed. That's heresy. Your friend who wears a prayer shawl and blows a shofar in her living room is not a heretic. At least not for those things, anyway. Take a look at this next slide here. I hope this is a little clear. There are issues about which we differ. And on most issues, Christians are going to have unity. We're going to see this is God's will. We're all together. We understand this is what God says to do. But on some issues, we're going to have differing opinions. Some of those opinions are in God's will. Some of those opinions have yet to be synced up to God's will. And sometimes we're products of our culture, and so we both think the same, like the letter T, but it's outside of God's will. But we think it's fine, and you think it's fine. Should you fast on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, the holiest day of the year? Should you abstain from going out to eat on the Lord's Day? Should you refrain from dressing up for Halloween because of its association with paganism? Should you have gotten the COVID vaccine? Last week, I mentioned your grandparents in the faith forbidding the playing of cards because of its association with gambling. They would have also been opposed to Christians going to the theater and to dancing. Well, which one is right? The Bible says, let each one be convinced fully in his own mind. Christian, there are going to be things in your life about which your conscience is strong. Your faith is strong. You have liberty. There are going to be other matters where your faith is weak, where your conscience is restricted. And you don't always know which one it is, but you must be convinced in your own mind, which means you must calibrate your conscience by the Scriptures. Look down at verse 14. Paul says, I know, I'm persuaded about the whole food thing. But yet, he gives space to those consciences that are weak at that point. He says, nothing is unclean in and of itself. But if you think it's unclean, it's unclean for you. Welcome the weak in faith. Put no distance between yourself and others. Read your Bible and know where you stand. And settle there. And be teachable. And if the Spirit of the Lord reveals where you are weak, then change. Now, the next point is extremely important. If you only hear one thing in this whole message, hear the first point, which is welcome the weak in faith. But if you hear two things in this message, hear this one, okay? Which is assume the best of everyone. 
Assume the best and let God be the judge. This is verse 6. Let's pick up reading in verse 6. Down to 13. Verse part of 13. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. Since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or you? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Now, a couple things to note about that section. The first is, Christian, we must assume the best of one another. Assume the best of your brother and sister. The one who observes the day, who is weak in their faith on that point, they do so in honor of the Lord, giving thanks to the Lord. The one who eats meat, whose conscience is strong on that point, does so in honor of the Lord, giving thanks to the Lord. We must assume that our brother and sister have come to their conclusion by careful study of God's word. They're not dumb. They're not just going with the flow because they don't know otherwise. Let yourself believe that their conscience is bound are free on that issue because they've studied Scripture and they're seeking to honor the Lord. Assume the best and welcome them. Well, I hope you see that Paul's concern in Romans 14 doesn't actually have that much to do with food and festivals at all. Paul's concern is that the Roman church, if they're not careful, with their differences regarding food and festival, if their consciences are free or bound on these matters of opinion, if they're not careful in acting in humility, they could tear down the thing that Christ built with his blood. And that is what could happen, dear Christian, when we when we judge one another for mowing the lawn on a Sunday afternoon. When we look down on someone for their choice to abstain from alcohol. And that brings us to the second thing. Let God judge. Verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother for his liberty? Why do you despise your brother for his weak conscience? Does his conscience need calibration? Of course, and so does yours. He seeks to honor the Lord, and so should you. We live to the Lord, we die to the Lord. 
Each of us will give an account to the Lord. But I'm afraid that some of the ways that Christians speak about one another with whom they disagree on these matters of conscience bring reproach upon the name of Christ. Listen to what the Apostle Paul told young pastor Titus in Titus 3. Pastor, speak evil of no one. Pastor, avoid quarreling. Pastor, be gentle. Pastor, show perfect courtesy toward all people. Not just people that you agree with, Pastor. All people. And Paul goes on. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. For they're unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. All that to say, brother and sister, assume the best of your brother and sister. Let God be the judge. Don't quarrel over non-essential matters, over matters of opinion. Instead of quarreling, the next thing Paul says is, build bridges. Don't separate. Build bridges. That's the next point, fourth point. Pick up reading in the second half of verse 13. Decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything indeed is clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good to... Not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Build bridges, not barriers. Would it help to remind you that the person whose conscience annoys you is also a person 
that God is just wild about? That guy whose uncalibrated conscience keeps him from enjoying all that God has given him was created by God. Colossians says that God the Father created him for God the Son. He's a gift to God the Son. And Hebrews says that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross to redeem that one. Oh, he annoys you, but God is crazy about him. So make a decision, PBC. Never let your personal convictions on disputable, non-essential matters become a stumbling block to anyone in your church. We build bridges. We don't tear them down. Free Christians and strict Christians have a responsibility toward one another to not put stumbling blocks in one another's way. If you're a member of this church, you made a covenant to participate in one another's joys, not spoil them. So Paul is telling the Gentile Christians in Rome, you're right. You are right about, not eating, about eating meat. But he tells them that their freedom is not worth grieving their brothers and sisters whose consciences are bound. If your conscience is strong, meaning you have liberty on some of these non-essentials, your conscience is not bound by your weaker brother or sister, but you must not be ostentatious and flaunt your freedom in front of them. There's a misunderstanding what freedom is. Freedom means that you are free to join them in their strictness. Freedom doesn't mean you're just going to do whatever you want. Freedom means you're free to eat meat or free to choose not to eat meat for the sake of your weaker brother. There is something at play here more important than your freedom, dear Christian. And it is the unity, the peace, and the edification of your church in the advance of the gospel. Paul put it like this in 1 Corinthians 9. To those people who still consider themselves under the law, I became like one who's under the law. To those Christians who are not under the law, I became like them, not under the law. To the King James onlys, I became King James only. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. So if your weaker brother or sister is annoyed by the freedom that you have that's on them, you can't change them. But don't let your freedom be the cause of them stumbling by going against their conscience. If you're flaunting your freedom in front of them, that strict brother or sister might feel that they're not a good Christian because they don't share in the same freedom on that non-essential that you have. 
and then you've sinned. Freedom means you have the freedom to lay your freedom down, which isn't a compromise. Young men, hear me, that's not a compromise. Neither is it legalism. It's what the Bible calls love. Verse 22 says, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. There's another side of this. Don't flaunt your freedom. That's one side. But the other side of this is that weaker brothers and sisters, we, we must not strong arm our strictness on others. If you're fully convinced in your own mind, keep it in your own mind. Don't try to convince other Christians that they're not as faithful as you because they're not as strict as you on non-essentials. Don't try to convince other Christians that they're less faithful than you because they're less strict than you on non-essentials. And if they ask, if your brother or sister asks, why is your conscience bound on this issue? Well, answer them. Answer them honestly. Answer them humbly. I might be wrong about this. Plenty of Christians see this issue differently. And ultimately, it's a non-essential. This is my position. And I don't believe that I'm more faithful before God because I do this and other Christians do that. In fact, I think when I read Romans 14, Paul would put me into the weaker in faith category. But this is my conviction. And I believe this restriction is wise this is why I've come to this conclusion, and I'm doing this in honor of the Lord. Now, personally speaking, there are things for which my conscience is bound where other stronger Christians have liberty. My faith is weak at that point. And I won't impose my conscience on anyone else's, and I'll seek the Lord enabling to not look down on those who have freedom. And also, I won't tell you what those things are, so don't ask. I will ask, though, that if you do encounter me in my weakness, that you would bear with me in that weakness. So number one, welcome the weak. Number two, be fully convinced in your own mind. Number three, assume the best of one another. Number four, build bridges. And then finally, as we close, give a gospel welcome. Let's pick up reading in chapter 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. 
the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So the strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. To bear with means to carry, means to help. The strong Christian must, mustn't add more weight to them, making them feel like they're less of a Christian because their conscience is bound. Strong Christians must make sure that the weaker Christians know that they're loved. Full communicative members of the body of Christ. That's what Jesus did. He laid down his freedoms for the sake of others. The unlimited one put on limitations to be your savior. The one who was unbound by time entered into time and got tired. The omnipotent one fell under the weight of the cross. Your God is completely free to act in justice and condemn each one of us to an eternal punishment in hell for our sin. But he chose to demonstrate the glory of his grace by welcoming sinners like us into his arms. PBC, when Jesus welcomed you, did you have your act altogether? Did Jesus come to you and see you in a mess and say, well, I'll come back later when you got it all cleaned up? No, when the Lord saved you, your understanding of God's will was wrong in so many ways. Your hermeneutics were all over the place. And yet he rushed towards you and took you in. You're a mess, but you're my mess. And held you close. And so you, dear ones, who've been welcomed into such big and forgiving arms as His, will you not overlook the silliness of your fellow members of your church? Is the unity that you share in Christ so fragile as that? Is unity so fragile? That a disagreement over politics or right-wing conspiracies or the education of children or a hundred other non-essential things, is it so fragile that unity can be ruined by these? Jesus saw you in your arrogance when you were so certain about things that you have no business being certain about. And he loved you through it. He saw you when you were strict where you needn't be. Where you were loose where you needn't be. And he didn't push you off the pier. He rushed toward you with overwhelming grace. Laid down his life to close the distance between you. And would you not do the same for a brother or sister? with whom you have unity in Christ. If we are to be a church that exalts Christ in our worship, 
We must calibrate our conscience by God's word. Humble ourselves at every step. Be teachable. Be gentle. Be patient. And most of all, welcome one another in love as Christ has welcomed us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, there's so much to confess. We admit, oh Lord, that we have been far too arrogant and far less teachable than we ought to have been. And while you've been so incredibly patient with us, we've been so impatient with one another. Where love is patient, we've been impatient. Where love is kind, we've been unkind. Where love does not boast, we boast in our theology. Where love is not arrogant or rude, we've been both. Where love does not insist on its own way, we've dug in our heels. And worst of all, Lord, we've rejoiced in this wrongdoing, pounding our chests, stroking our own backs. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is what we've seen in your son Jesus. And this is what we've been so slow to imitate. Please forgive us. Make us a welcoming people. Give us your Holy Spirit that we may welcome one another as we have been welcomed. By Jesus. And teach us how to disagree on these non-essentials. To know which hills we are to die on. And on which hills we must never even bicker. Make us teachable and patient. Amen. Please stand to your feet for the assurance of pardon. Among my favorite things that we do here at PBC is every week we search the scriptures for an assurance of pardon. After having confessed our sins... We look for God's assurance that He has forgiven us these sins. And we read one of them in Romans 15.3 this morning. For Christ did not please Himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell 